So we are in verse 14 this morning, and uh, just going to read three verses. When you get to verse 16, you'll kind of think we're breaking off mid-thought. There's some truth to that, but it's intentional. So look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as long-suffering, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we're going to stop reading there. And one of the reasons for that is because you'll notice verse 17 immediately takes us to the last so-called beloved B, okay, because it says there, therefore beloved, and we'll be looking at that next week. That's our last one. So that's why we'll stop there. Let's have a word of prayer because we need to ask God's blessing. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we come into your presence this morning acknowledging our deep need. And Father, we first of all know that we're sinful people, so we're in regular, constant need of cleansing and forgiveness. Thank you that positionally all of that's been granted to us because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his cleansing blood. But Lord, uh, as we think of our daily walk, we also realize the importance of keeping short accounts with you. And so as we start the Lord's Day, we will just come into your presence at the outset of our our services here at the, at the church, and pray that you would just put us uh, in a frame of attitude and heart and mind that seeks to be in tune with you and seeks the blessing that you brought us here to give and to receive today. Help us to have that thought about us too, that we're here not just to get, but also to give. Thank you for the books of First and Second Peter, for those things that it's been our privilege to look at. Thank you for the verses that we'll be looking at today. And thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We're just grateful for that. And uh, we pray that today, once again, you would suit a blessing to each listener. And uh, we'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, just a quick reminder of what we're doing with this book of Second Peter, looking at the fact or the theme of uh, the sufficiency of faith and the Bible is sufficient for faith. That sort of contrasts, I've said this before, but that sort of contrasts with what we were looking at in 1 Peter. So does, so does the problem in 1 Peter, because in 1 Peter the problem is more external, and so we're looking at the subject of suffering and making the statement that Christ is sufficient in suffering. But you get a couple of years down the road, and, and you know this, remember this from chapter number one, Peter is, is pretty much convinced that his time is short. The end is near. And uh, so he's writing to these people in view of a problem that's cropped up, this time kind of both external and internal, but internal primarily with false teachers, people bringing in false teaching into the church and the damage that that can cause. And uh, so we have seen that the Bible is sufficient for faith, first of all, in chapter 1, because it shows us how to be flourishing Christians. And hopefully that's our burden and our desire here today. We don't want to just be bumps on logs. We want to, to be prosperous in the sense of doing what God wants us to do and prospering in our, our Christian life and in our Christian walk uh, each day with God. And then it's also sufficient for faith in chapter 2 because it warns us about the false teachers. It warns us about the attack to come. And, of course, that's not just in Peter's day. It's certainly in our day. 
Uh, you just have to wake up in the morning and look at the news or look at what's going on even in, in the religious circles to know how true that really is. And then in this last chapter, Peter sort of turns his attention again away from this blistering attack on these false teachers back to his beloved audience, back to his readers. Not that the other wasn't there for their benefit, obviously it is, but especially by addressing them four times with the word beloved and then after each of them giving an exhortation. And this chapter is designed to show us the Bible is sufficient to be steadfast in faith, and that's an important concept. Um, the word unstable, verse 16, if you saw that, the word unstable occurs there. And it's kind of interesting. I'm gonna, I won't take a lot of time for this. This is just by way of introduction, but that's a very important concept to Peter. And um, the ESV seems, sees fit to translate this stable um, sometimes, but the concept that we're using is steadfast. And so it's the opposite of the, that here in that verse. People who are not steadfast um, have this problem and this deficiency insofar as the scripture is concerned. But then the contrast comes, and this is what we'll look at next week. You, therefore, beloved, in contrast to these people that are unstable and ignorant or unlearned, he says he wants us to be not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our own, there it is, stability, steadfastness. Next week, we'll go back and look at some of the other occurrences of, of this word just to sort of get that concept right at the very end of things. But today, here's what we have. Beloved, be diligent. Now, when we read this in verse number 14, you look at this and you say, all right, great, I see diligent and I see beloved. This is an easy one in the ESV because they're both right there in the same verse. Beloved, be diligent. The problem is that even though Peter talks a number of times about diligence, our version that we're using doesn't always translate it that way. In fact, you might remember that I pointed this out back in chapter 1 because some of the versions are not always consistent with this, but this too is a very important concept to Peter. This idea of diligence, and I'm headed somewhere with this, so just hold with me here, but look at, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 5. When he says this, for this reason make every effort, well that's the same thing, be diligent. So this is our problem, that we're not always seeing it translated diligent, but hopefully someone can point out to us it's the same word, so we realize, all right, this concept is on Peter's mind as he begins the letter, it's also on his mind as he ends the letter. That tells you something that I think is important. It occurs again in chapter 10, and this time, or in verse 10, this time it is translated diligent. Look at that. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So two times in chapter number one. It's actually two times in chapter number three. We saw the one in our verse, verse number 14, if you look at that. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. And you say, I don't see it in verse number 12. And there are two explanations for this. First of all, it uses a slightly different form of the verb. It's the same root. Okay, so it's the same concept that's going on here. Second thing is, it's not translated diligent here because this is, this is the problem. I uh, want to point this out because sometimes I talk about translations and sometimes I don't always quite buy into the decisions that they make and who am I, but I'm just saying that a lot of things go into the decision that you make to translate a word, even if it's the same word, because sometimes words have different nuances just as they do in English. 
and they're used in different contexts, and to translate it the same way in a particular context where it has a little different thought to it doesn't always make sense. And I think you've got that in verse number 12, where here it is, waiting for and hastening. There it is, hastening. You say, what's that got to do with diligence? Well, here's the point. In both of these verbs, either one that you want to look at, the root of it has the idea of haste. So it's not too far to get to the idea that you often have to exert a little bit more effort, right? If you're needing to get something done urgently or quickly, sometimes it calls forth greater effort. And that's where you get the concept of diligence coming out of the root meaning of this word. So all that just basically to say that this is an important concept to Peter. What's the takeaway? Is there anything practical to say having labored that somewhat perhaps by way of introduction? Yeah, there is. To me, what it tells me is, is I want to remain steadfast in my Christianity that's going to require me to apply myself. It's going to require some effort on my part. It's going to require some diligence, some effort. Like he said in how it was translated in one of the occurrences in make every effort. Do you remember when you were younger? I, I realize that's a lot to ask. But when you were a little kid, do you remember how your parents tried to communicate this to you? I'm sure they did. I do, I can remember my parents saying to me things along the lines of, you know, you have to apply yourself. And that's true, I mean, some things just require effort. Some things do not just happen in and of themselves. In fact, that's probably true of most things. Here's the point that I want to leave you with by way of introduction, and we'll jump into this this morning. See, this idea, whether we're talking back in chapter number one of being a, a flourishing Christian, or the idea in chapter 3 of remaining steadfast and firm in our faith, particularly given the attacks upon it, and also given the fact that we are sort of lax by nature and people start talking about, you have to apply yourself. You know, that sounds a little bit like the, another expression my dad used to use. When he used to say, yeah, take a little elbow grease. Well, that sounds like work, doesn't it? And that doesn't always, you know, we, we oh, work. But here's the point, folks. I mean, you know, this isn't just going to happen. It's not going to drop out of the sky. God has given us our salvation. And I guess a practical way of putting this without trying to get into odd theological connotations is just simply say, what are we doing with it? Paul asks the same things of the Philippians when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say anything about work it in. He doesn't say anything about work it up, because you can't do that. What he does say is work it out. And so the simple thought is this, and I'm sure it's not exactly a new one for you this morning, is that we do need to be willing to apply some effort in our Christian life in order to remain steadfast. So that's our, that's our thought this morning. Beloved, be diligent. I see three areas here, and you're going to notice in how I've characterized these main points now, what I'm striving for here is kind of the devotional take on the thought that I'm giving you this morning. I mean, I don't want to just come here on Sunday morning and labor through technical points of exposition. I want the exposition to be there in the sense that what I'm telling you is, is, is exegetically solid. But I want you to be able to take something away. Otherwise, there's no sense in being up here. So, again, here's something interesting to note. And we do have some help from the way it's translated in our version here. You notice in verse number 14, it starts off, before you get to diligent, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. And what's going on? What's he talking about in the prior context? We're talking about things that, that happen prophetically. And 
if we wanted to be most general, we might just say most specifically the second coming of Christ, but he really talks a lot about what's going to eventually happen with the world, as we, as we saw last week, making the point that, you know, we're not going to be here forever and neither is what's around us. And that's always something good to keep in mind. But talking about concepts that mean a lot to the writer, this is the third time because in verse 12, look how, how it starts, waiting for. Verse number 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for. So if you underline in your Bible, that's a nice place to do it because it's translated the same way all three times and points out that Peter, having talked about these subjects of Bible prophecy, now mentions a very practical point. You and I are waiting for these things. This thought here that's involved with waiting, you notice I pointed out there without making any attempt to give you the uh, a transliteration of the original term, is, is a term that actually means to literally to think towards. So if I have something that I'm anticipating, well, you could imagine right now that we have two people in our church that are really thinking towards July 2. Just looking to see who knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Only natural to be doing that. You have a great deal of anticipation, but guess what? There's a whole lot of work and planning and thought that goes into that too. So if we're expecting and looking forward to the, the return of Christ, how will that affect us? And that's the whole idea of the practical intent of Bible prophecy. And it's like anything else. Whether you're talking about eschatology or Bible prophecy, that's just another doctrine in God's Word. So we can broaden the point and just simply say, we don't teach the Bible and we don't teach doctrine to people just so that we can be educated. We do do it for that reason. We teach people that, that, those things so that we understand the practical import of them and how we're supposed to live. And the Bible does a lot with this. For instance, back up to verse 11, he's already hammered this a time or two. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Here are some other verses that kind of go to the point. 1 John 2.28, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. So if we're anticipating these end time events, it should affect how we live from day to day. On into chapter 3, two verses, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then this, everyone who has or who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. That purifies himself is going to get us real close to what we're going to see coming up in the context next. So let's have a look at it. Peter mentions the following things. Whereas in verse 11, he talked about holiness and godliness. Here he talks about two things, three really. But he says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And then the way our version handles this, it says, and at peace. Well, here's what I'd like to sort of point out to you along this line. And so you have a paper, and I'll even just flick the slide ahead so you can see this, uh, two slides ahead, actually. I'm working towards this last thought because I think that this is, you have two blatant and clear adjectives here, without spot or blemish. I say blatant because they're stuck right out there in front. But the end goal that you're driving at is this, be found in him at peace. 
So let me talk about that for just a moment. Do you value God's peace? I mean, I think that that's one of the most wonderful things about knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord is that we can enjoy peace. When we come to know the Lord, and you've heard this before, when we come to know the Lord, we now have peace with God, Romans 5.1. But there is the peace of God that we have as believers, and we think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, so we know it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. I think I have an audience here that can readily identify with this. You know, when you're, when you're younger and ambitious, you're, you're ready to get out there and do battle. And you do have to remain vigilant. You do have to be ready to do battle if you have to do battle. But you know, the older you get, you kind of cherish your peace. And you, you know, I'll fight if I have to fight, but I'm not out here looking for one. And I think that's a, a good way to be. Don't go looking for trouble because trouble will find you without you looking for it. And if you have the kind of personality that you're always looking to mix it up with somebody, you'll have plenty of opportunities. Keep your life in kind of an uproar. So if we want to enjoy God's peace, how do we get there? I mean, as Christians, we, ha- we positionally, we have peace with God. But day to day, how do we enjoy God's peace? It requires some diligence because we want to be without spot or blemish. That's the practical import of all this. We're looking for these things. We're waiting for these things. It should encourage us to want to live this way. Now, these terms here, these are, these are the things that kind of make you, when you look at it, say, you know what? Uh, you can tell what Peter's trying to do, and you can also see the, the mind of the Holy Spirit to some extent, to the extent to which we can understand that, behind this, as far as inspiration goes, because... I want to show you a little trail for these words. Without spot. Spot is a spill or a stain. All right, so how many men here this morning, you know, you've done this before to your tie? That's the absolute worst. I, have, I don't know that I've ever sent a tie to the dry cleaner that it's come back the same way I sent it. So we all understand the, the damage that can happen with a spot or a stain. Um, blemish, that's a similar thing. So we've got two words to sort, of, to sort of flesh this idea out. Peter has already made it clear that that's pretty much the opposite of the way the false teachers conduct themselves. That's not their lifestyle. Look back at verse 13. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Here's this profligate, extravagant type of living that they did. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery. Uh, where is our terms here? Um, well, this is interesting. Oh, I'm sorry, it's right there in the front of my face and I can't see it. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Blots and blemishes, there it is. That's, that's what he's told us about the lifestyle of these people. On the other hand, let's pick up on these same two words again. Go back to chapter 1, verse 19, and he says this about the Lord Jesus, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So now we see that in marked contrast to these false teachers, the character of Christ is outlined in these two terms, without spot or blemish. 
Then we go over to a verse like Ephesians 5.27, which that's a few more pages, so I have this one for you here. Here's, here's another occasion where these two words are used. Well, we, well, we know there's the context of this, the, the washing of the water by the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. It's translated wrinkle, the second term there, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without, there's our without blemish. So there's our without blemish. So in other words, what are we seeing in this? Well, we're seeing that this is precisely the character of Christ, and we know that sanctification and Christian growth involves what? Becoming more and more like Jesus. We are being transformed from glory to glory, even as by the Lord the Spirit, right? We know this is what Christian growth and sanctification is all about. It's only doing, by doing those things that you enjoy God's peace because you know what? You get defilement in your life. You get stains of sin in your life. You get blemishes in your life, and it blows up peace. You know what I'm talking about? And I think the more you walk with the Lord and the older you get in the things of grace, the less it takes. That's a good thing. That's a good sign, the less it takes. And I can't speak for you, but there are certain things that you know are right. Sometimes you just have to make decisions that you're going to commit yourself to doing what's right, even if you don't like it. And to me, one of those was apologizing. Early on, I made that decision. If I, if I spoke a crossword at home, or in some way was too hard on one of my kids, or heaven forbid, but... Perhaps I did that at church. Perhaps I did that at a meeting with somebody. If I found out or suspected later that that caused a problem, I'm just going to go apologize. I'm just going to stow the pride and go apologize. Because I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live with a disquieted spirit. I don't want to live with a potential blemish. I want to live at peace. I want to be found of him at peace when he comes back. And you know, that's an interesting expression, and it's actually picked up in a gospel song. You know this, when Jesus comes to reward his servants, whether it be noon or night, faithful to him will he find us watching, find us, find us, watching with our lamps all trimmed and bright. So, if we're not careful about our Christian walk, if we don't exert some effort, apply ourselves, this defilement has a way of creeping in, like in the ancient world, they'd walk along and Maybe you had a bath, but you, your feet get dirty when you walk along the road. Got to keep that away. Got to keep cleansed if you're going to enjoy God's peace. Well, let's move on. So Peter said that in verse number 9, so now we have a second thought here. First of them is our walk with the Lord. Second is our concern for the lost. And again, I told you I was going to put these in just a, a devotional, practical kind of a style our concern for the lost. This subject of God's long-suffering comes up again. And here's another thing that is a repeat. In other words, this is also a concept that Peter's talked about a number of times. So let's jump back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. And let's just catch the end verse first. I don't think I put that on a slide, so you're only within a page or two of that. Have a look. He says here, just trying to look for this concept in Peter's writings. Because they formerly did not obey God, when here it is God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I, I got a picture this week 
and, and it's, it's in the, it was in the typical style of how my youngest son does things. It doesn't give you any context, just sends you a picture. He might not have any, might not say anything, or he might just have a couple of cryptic words. And so I get this picture, and I'm looking at this thing, and it says something, it did say really big. It said really big. <laughs> I'm looking at this thing, and it says, well, it looks like a ship under construction. So I, I can play that game, too. So I texted back one character, a question mark. And I get back, he's at Noah's Ark. Well, that's what it looked like to me. And I texted him back, and I said, I thought the thing was completed. He said, it is. And so then he, then he goes out and has, sends me a bigger picture where I can see the whole thing, and there was just some platform or something there that I was mistaking for, or I think it was, I was mistaking it for Derek work, that kind of thing. He says, huge. This thing's huge. How long do you think it took Noah to build that? Whatever you think about that time frame, 100 years or whatever, whatever you think about that time frame, God's long-suffering was operating. And I told you before, I would prefer the translation, not patience here, but long-suffering. Patience to us in English, I think, is generally the idea of people, although you could argue this is with people. Patience, or long-suffering rather, goes to people. Patience is with things. So I like the idea of God's long-suffering. Macrothemia is the word, and that's, it's not the typical word that's translated patience. But that's how ESV chooses to handle it. Then we have it back in chapter 3, verse 9. Right in our very context, Peter has already had something to say about this. And he says that long-suffering was also operating. And you have a very clear example of this, verse number 9. With the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some the whole church age. God's not negligent and God's not impotent. God's exercising long-suffering to allow space for people to be saved to give room for people to be saved. How gracious God is. How gracious God has been to you and me. Well, now he brings this same point up again and says, and count the patience. There it is, this long-suffering. The long-suffering of our Lord as salvation. So, same thought really coming up again, except he's, he's even more explicit. He says, it's not only to provide space for repentance, but what does repentance lead to? Salvation. So he, he kind of equates God's long-suffering with salvation. But there's a great reminder here for us, folks, that this is, this is sort of the, the uniform teaching of the New Testament when we look at this subject. He says, brings up Paul now, and he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. This is really interesting. I have more to say about this in the last point, but... So he's bringing up the idea of Paul's letters, and he says, you know what? It isn't, it's not just me. This is what Paul teaches, too. And I gave you some examples of this. And by the way, scholars go back and forth about this as to whether this reference to Paul's epistles is to Peter's just trying to, which is, is probably the easier interpretation to take, and probably the better anyway, is to assume that he's talking about Paul's letters in general rather than a specific letter written to this audience. It's possible Paul wrote a specific letter to some of them. That that's, gets you a little bit off into the weeds trying to figure out what that is. Um, but in any event, here's a couple of thoughts from Paul. Now this, this is actually the very same point brought out, but in Paul's language. Romans 2.4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness 
is meant to lead you to repentance. So just ask yourself the question, how long did God bear with you? How long did God bear with me? This is the, these are the manifestations of God's long suffering in order that we might be saved. Or a verse like 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires all people to be saved, where he's talking about kings and all that are in authority, that, you know, those people, God knows their name too. And as hard as it is to pray for some of them, it's something we should make ourselves do because God is interested in them as well, not just us. And so Paul is saying, you know what, this is what, or Peter is saying, this is the same thing that, that, that Peter teaches, in, or Paul teaches in his letters. Here's the practical thing I want to leave you with this before we run off to our last thought. I've noticed this over the years, and it ebbs, you know, it, it's like a lot of things, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. You do better in some periods, in some days, than you do on other days. But somehow there is just some quality to being soul conscious, to being on the lookout for, for people that God might give you an opportunity with, that is a part of staying right and keeping right with God which goes, takes us right back to what we were talking about in verse 14, that diligence. Here's the verse that I often like to use for this now. I'm going to give it to you two ways. Here's ESV. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So, question. In this context in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 and running down through about 18 or 19, what's going on? What's he talking about? The Christian's what? Armor. Now, typically you think of armor as being defensive, and it's not my point to get off into all of this, but I, I can tell you this. Here's the King James rendering. What? I thought I had that for you. Maybe I don't. Oh, yeah, I remember it didn't fit. Well, it says, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How good is a soldier likely to be? How prepared is a soldier likely to be without his boots? You, I mean, you wouldn't last five minutes. I mean, you're out there running around and there's stones and there's, in a modern combat scene, who knows what you might be running onto. I mean, you might have glass, you might have bricks, you, you know, you're just out of, you just, you're not ready. And in a kind of a, Related sense, although it's not quite the same thing. Remember David when he was going to go fight Goliath, and Saul said, here, let me give you my armor. And, you know, I have this picture that Saul was bigger than David, I think on some biblical evidence, because the Bible says that he was, what, a, he was a head taller than the rest of the people. So you can imagine his armor. You can imagine what the Bible's talking about when David put this on, and it just kind of dwarfed him, and I mean, he's kind of rattling around in this. He says, I take this away. I, I haven't proved these. He wasn't comfortable. And he picked up the things he was comfortable with, which was a shepherd's sling and his script, his, his little thing there. He put those five smooth stones. Kind of takes us off into a rabbit trail, but I can remember going there to that place on a trip to Israel. I don't know whether the Israeli Ministry of Tourism backs up with a dump truck periodically and dumps them in there or whether they're naturally occurring, but I'm telling you what, all I had to do was walk up to that place where that little wadi comes down through there and look on the side of it where there were still some stones embedded in the dirt, and I brought me home a nice, rounded stone. Kill you dead as a hammer if somebody hit you with that in the head. And I thought to myself, 
I got to show this to people. I mean, if this is what he had five of, he was prepared, right? He was prepared with the things. And I'm just saying, folks, there's something about being soul conscious. There's something about understanding that soul winning is for us. Soul winning is not just for the preacher or church leadership or whatever. It's for us. And, and when we maintain that kind of a, because you can't, re, you know, there's something about witnessing that people keeps you on your game. That's what I'm trying to say. It keeps you on your game. keeps you motivated to be right with God because you're not going to do much witnessing when you're kind of careless and negligent about your Christian life. Okay, here's our last thought. Our attention to the Word. What things do we need to be diligent about to remain steadfast? What's the burden Peter has here? Our walk with the Lord? Our concern for the lost? And our attention to the Word. I'm taking you right back to what I said at the very beginning takes a little elbow grease. You have to apply yourself. And I'm convinced that's why some Christians don't go very far because they just they neglect their Bibles as well as they neglect certain other things. This isn't exactly rocket science. It's not like you haven't heard this before. But let's start with something else. In verse uh, 15, he says something that really catches my attention. Just as our beloved brother Paul that to me is, there, that, that expression to me is dynamite. That, that, that is so meaningful. You say, really? Yeah, really, I'll tell you why. You remember what happened in Antioch? It's been some years before, to be sure. And they say time heals all wounds, but some wounds take a whole lot more time. Remember that? Here, I'm going to give it to you. But when Cephas, you know, that's Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul writing in Galatians. So Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, he was wrong. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Ouch. I mean, I suppose you could call that a public rebuke. That doesn't set too well with some people. You have to have a degree of humility to accept something like that, and a lot of Christians just don't have that. But, you know, Peter has talked something about that. Back in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Peter, So I exhort elders among you as a fellow elder, and I pointed out when we were looking at that, that he didn't pull rank of apostleship. He says, I'm a fellow elder. He gets down a little bit further, and he says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you will find, receive from him an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you younger, submit yourself to the elder. Clothe yourselves, all of you young or old, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I'm just of the opinion, and I pointed this out to you. Look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. I, I, I see this humility deepening, and that's exactly what should happen. As we grow in grace, humility should deepen in our lives. And so, how does he start off this whole letter? Simon Peter. And he puts the Simon in there where he didn't put it in the first letter. Simon's who he was before Jesus ever called him Cephas. And it never hurts to remember who you were before you what you are now. (laughs) 
It reminds me of a quaint little story. I may have to explain it a little bit, but when I was a teenager, there was a place within about 10 miles that it was a gun shop, a man by the name of Mazel, Robert P. Mazel. So his initials were RPM. And the name of his gun shop was RPM Gun Shop. And I had occasion to go there and become familiar with the place and occasionally took something to him for a repair or maybe a new purchase, something of that nature. And, you know, the first time I ever went to that place, he had, I'm telling you, if you started at the back row of this church and came up about where Diane is, and that's about how wide it was, that might have been too much. That's all the place he had. That place was just cluttered with stuff everywhere. And finally he got to the place where he outgrew that and had enough money and he built a, you know, a, a decent-sized shop, had a range out back and all that kind of thing. And uh, so then I went off to school and I, I, my interest in that didn't change. So I can remember going back, it had been a few years since he'd seen me. and He'd had a heart problem and I, I went in there and started talking to him and he said, now remember I knew you when you were poor. Well, I was still poor, but I understood the figure of speech. Remember, I, I knew you before. It never hurts to keep that in mind. He was Simon before he was Peter. And then he calls himself a servant before he says anything about an apostle of Jesus Christ. So where are we headed with this? Well, lingering pride, if, Paul, if Peter had kind of taken umbrage over that and allowed pride to control his life, it would have hindered a warm relationship. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised there is wisdom. But a growing humility, chapter 1, verse 1, fosters esteem among God's servants. This is where I gave you the King James. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom, Proverbs 13, 10 ESV, or King James, only by pride cometh contention. That's really the way our Christian lives should be, and, but it's rare. It's sad. It's sad how rare this commodity is. And I think Peter shows that he has a warm relationship with Paul. It shows that he didn't let that control his life. He accepted that. He got past that. He made a course correction in response to that valid rebuke that he was given. And their relationship grew in warmth. That can't happen if you let pride control your life. Also, here's another fascinating thing. He was clearly familiar with and a student of Paul's epistles. What does he say here? Well, he says, he obviously has knowledge of this or he couldn't talk about it. He says, as he does in all his letters. Well, these letters circulated, so it's, it's not really a lot to understand and assume that, that, that Peter had access to these letters, those that were at that point, and probably a lot of that because of the time frame of 2 Peter. And he says, in all his letters, he obviously has familiar with that. He's obviously familiar with all of his letters and obviously familiar with the things in them because he says there are in them some things hard to understand. Who said there wasn't any humor in the Bible? The guy that wrote those, well, the Latin for it would be crux interpretums, that you learn that when you, in other words, that's a verse nobody can really explain to anybody else's satisfaction except their own. And half the time they can't explain it to their own satisfaction. The guy that wrote some of these verses that you stub your toe on and break your neck, like in 1 Peter chapter 3 about 
God's long-suffering in the days of Noah, when he starts talking about the spirits that were in prison. Then he gets down to the next chapter and he says, uh, that for this cause was the gospel preached to them that are dead. The guy that wrote some of those verses said Paul wrote some things hard to understand. That's hilarious to me. I mean, you know, there's a pot calling the kettle black, in my opinion, but it's just humorous to me. But it, it goes to make a practical point. You know, beloved, to, to master this book, and nobody really has done that here, but to become knowledgeable of this book and to understand this book, it goes right back to where we started, take some elbow grease. And I have to admit to you, so this is one of those places where I have a vulnerable spot, so if you tell me this, I'll do my best to react appropriately. Most of the time I do. I can't promise you what I'm thinking. But I'd, every once in a while I have somebody come up to me that I didn't know very well or they didn't know me very well, and they'd say, oh, a preacher, huh? You only work one day a week. That didn't set real well with me. And I always used to think to myself, well, I guess that's true. Some preachers, they don't put much effort into it. I guess they just get one of those books from Zondervan or one of those that has 52 sermons for the year and somebody tells them what to preach. And, but you know what? I couldn't run my life that way and I couldn't run my ministry that way because I couldn't be right with God that way. You have to kind of make a, make, a, make a determination you're going to deep dive into here if you want to have something to give people including yourself. And is it worth doing that? It sure is, because you find in it God's wisdom. So look at what he says back up in verse 15b. He says, according to the wisdom given to him. So every writer in Scripture who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was given wisdom to impart to their readers on behalf of God. God's wisdom is imparted in his word. And you know, we, sometimes we're kind of glib about quoting that verse in James, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That's a great promise, and it's true, but you have a whole book of it right here. And then he says something else. He says, as the other scriptures, that, that's a dynamite point, because what, what he's telling us basically is, is that he's calling Paul's letters scripture. And that goes to authority, because what did Peter start off this letter by telling us? Holy men, this is verse 21 of chapter 1. Holy men of old spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. So the scripture contains God's wisdom and God's authority. I don't have time for this now. We're about out of time, but I'm going to tell you there is no more vital issue in this day in which we live than authority. It's the whole problem with everything that's going on right now. How can you talk about transgenderism? How can you talk about all these things unless you set yourself up as the authority? If my authority as a Christian and your authority as a Christian is this book, that's another ballgame. And this authority issue is what's a problem with our culture today. We've re-engineered the whole thing so that we've gotten rid of the, the ancient landmarks. We've gotten rid of the Bible and don't have that in the public school anymore or prayer. We've gotten rid of all those things and substituted human wisdom, not God's wisdom, for it, and our society is coming apart at the streams because of that, seams because of that, isn't it? I mean, 
Anyway, Scripture requires diligence. He says they that are unstable and unlearned twist. They contort the Scriptures. But if you're, steadfast, if you're careful with the Scripture and apply diligence, it repays this effort with growing faith and steadfastness. Got to quit. Time is up. But if I could leave you with something, folks, just take those three points and think about it. It takes a little effort. But there are three things Peter was burdened about for us to be steadfast Christians. Lord, bless us now as we go to our next service. In Jesus' name, amen.